Welcome everyone to episode 77 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dan DeGrice. Now Dan is a recently retired battalion chief with Chicago Fire. He worked with their EAP for a couple decades uh, on Local 2. And he actually uh, helped create the Florian program in Rosencrantz, which is for first responders and other professionals and, and military. So uh, he told me earlier he hates the long resume intro, so uh, I'll just give you that, and then we'll just kind of get into the episode. So without further ado, here's Dan. All right, Dan DeGrice, welcome to the show, my friend. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon to you. Um, Thanks, Jim. Thanks for inviting me. It's one degree here. How cold is it by you? Hmm. It is not that cold. It is uh, still cold. There's still snow on the ground. Let me see here. Let's see what the weather channel says. Uh, it's 29 degrees in exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio. Nice. Nice. So yeah. I'll, I'll take that as a win. We're only uh, about four and a half, five hours away. Well, probably six hours away from where you're at right now. You're in, you're in what, uh, Rockport, Illinois? Rockford, yeah. Rockford. Rock. Okay. That's okay because before I worked here, I really didn't know where Rockford was or what Rockford was either. So <laughs> nice. Well, we're going to get to your work there, but let's let's start kind of even a little bit. Let's go in the way back machine, um, and we'll kind of get to where how you, you know how you're set up now. But um, you weren't a firefighter first, right? You actually kind of got into whole kind of behavioral health world. To begin with and then decided that you know wanted to be a firefighter how how did that whole thing transpire well interesting i mean there's a funny story too is that when i was in college i thought i wanted to be a business person until i was faced with passing microeconomics and i did okay in macro but micro i got a d both times and i'm like oh my professor's like hey you got to do something different so i'm like okay what can i do well in, and the student teacher ratio was 12 to one. I went to a smaller broad college and I'm like, I'm not doing chemistry, I'm not doing biology. Ended up doing psychology and uh, met a couple of professors that I liked and I enjoyed it. Got out of school and um, I actually applied to be a state police officer, an FBI agent, uh, secret service, CIA. And behold, nobody wanted me. I'm like, what the heck? I got a 2.67 GPA. I'm like, that's that's a little bit better than a, a C average. Might, might have been a C plus. I'm not sure. And ultimately, I remember one of the professors saying to me, hey, I think you would do well counseling kids. And I don't know where he got that from. But lo and behold, I had applied also to a residential treatment center for adolescents 13 to 18. And so I began my career out of college working with uh, kids 13, 18 that had drug and alcohol problems and also on a unit for a couple of years with severe behavioral disorders, which I think as you're hearing me talk, you're realizing that's a great baseline to deal with firefighters. <laughs> that, that is, <laughs> that is, the, yes, my age does not reflect my maturity level at all clearly no and i i love that too because that's my my dad was involved with doing that as well you know working on kind of behavioral health and 
working with okay. Sid initially here in, in, in Dayton, um, you know, when I was young, 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 which kind of helped prepare him for dealing with me, I think, as well. Yeah, I often say that really I could have retired after the six years I worked there because I made all of $6.85 an hour. Granted, that was back in 86, but uh, <laughs> frontline personnel that work with human lives, unfortunately, in a serious note, don't make a ton of money. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to survive doing this. And I really didn't want to go back to school, to, to, to be honest. And then what happened was, is, and I took the, the entrance exam for the Chicago Fire Department back in 85, 45,000 people took it. And uh, when I was supposed to get on, actually, we had a uh, changeover in the mayoral situation and there was a hiring, hiring freeze for a year. I'm like, well, there goes my career in the, in the fire service. But I got on in 1989 and um, stayed working with kids till 92 until my present wife fired me. And that's a true story. All you know, I got to do is ask her. Uh, it wasn't because I sexually harassed her or anything like that, but it was actually because everybody that worked there was going on to get an advanced degree and I had already have a full-time job. I was there the longest and everybody was afraid to say, hey, Dan, you got to go. So they asked my boss, my girlfriend at the time, and still my boss, hey, you got to let them go. <laughs> How, how did that conversation go? Uh, it, it, it went well, actually. I was expecting it because they were downsizing. It was a private organization. They could do what they want. I enjoyed my time there. It was coming to an end in, in regards to what I wanted to do. I, like, like you know, I started working there and then wanted to be a firefighter because the law enforcement didn't want me. <laughs> FBI, I applied twice and both times didn't pass the entrance exam. I don't know why and uh, loved being a firefighter. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll just do this for, for now. Unbeknownst to me, looking at 36 years later that I, I've been, I'd stay in behavioral health. Now, when you started back and you said what, 89? When you, when you started with uh, Chicago? 89, yeah. Yeah, so I think I already know the answer, but like when you were going through recruit, recruit school, was there any type of behavioral health stuff at all? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. There was uh, it was, Hey, get your, get yourself here on time. Don't cry. And uh, don't complain. Cause if you do, we will kick your butt even harder. And uh, if you don't measure up, uh, we'll kick you out. So yeah, there, well, there's a lot of feelings and support in regards to how you felt in, in your emotions, probably much like your academy and everybody else's. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the answer I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> it threw me off there for a second. It's like, Oh wow. They were doing that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you went there and you, you just, you were just a firefighter. You were just, you know, doing the job. Um, at what point did you kind of get into, um, you know, your, what you went to college for yeah so it, it happened by happenstance i was at the firehouse i had a guy kevin grand he worked in the union's eap program for many years he was actually looking to get out of it i didn't know that that was going to be the case 
we had a struck up a conversation at the firehouse and he's like, Hey, why don't you come by the union hall and, and maybe you'd like to help out a little bit, not knowing his whole plan was for me to take it over in a year so he can retire. And, and, and really there's a point to that is that we throughout the country. And I think we briefly talked about this, me and you is building a program is one thing, sustaining it is a totally different, uh, uh and so in a, in a very short time, I realized in about six months when I started helping Kevin, I realized that he was on his way out. Uh, it didn't take long for me to, 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 to figure that out. I didn't know he was going to have me do it because there was somebody else that was working with him as well. And then, um, yeah, it, it came to my realization that, yeah, he's going. It's not going to be the other person. It's going to be me. And I was going to have to make a decision. Do I sustain this program, uh, which was a tall task. I mean, we have 8,000 active and retired members. And while, you know, Chicago, people are all over the place. And the main thing that people were there for before me, the, the, like Kevin and Don Manning, who started the program back in the 80s, per se, really was just alcohol and sometimes substances, drugs. And when I got involved, my goal was to build that, not only from a, a qualitative process, but a, a quantitative, reach as many people as we can, have a few more staff, but I needed the union executive board to buy in and cover more issues that were out there just than alcohol and drugs. And they call it a broad brush program. I did a lot of research. I wasn't, as I already told you, not the best student, but I immersed myself into the fact that number one, I'm going to get to do stuff that I got education for. I also grew up in an alcoholic family. So I had that passion to help change really the bottom line, help change if somebody wanted to change and then really cover all the different things that people were experiencing. And I'll tell you back in the 90s, I did not know everything that people in the fire service and even my dad, who was a Chicago cop for 32 years and also spent four years in the military as a Marine, I didn't know what they were all dealing with. So I got my own education from immersing myself and, and, and as I met people and they came across the desk for me and I did an intervention, I did an assessment, which I got trained to do working in a mental health facility and, and asking a, a variety of different questions, some that pissed them off because I was probing in their life. And we as first responders are, are great assessors. So what I didn't know in the beginning was kind of like we do, like you're doing with me, you're, you're eyeballing me, I'm eyeballing you. We're right, we size each other up. We've all played sports. I didn't realize that. And now when I teach, I instruct, I should say, peer supporters and clinicians, I tell them, hey, we have a skill that whether or not you like it or not happens. And we size up situational awareness and view people for scene safety all the time. So I got an education as I started to do this and work for the union. Uh, 
what I found out quickly too was working for an, a union shop and working within the IFF, there was a group of individuals, Don Manning, who started the local 2ZAP program. Uh, there were five other guys and one of the guys, Willie Ostegai from Boston, I don't, unfortunately don't remember the other gentleman's name, but they were on a committee for the IFF to suggest having peer supporters, people within, uh, but identified as EAP coordinators to help their membership. And when I got on, I looked at the book that was written back in the early 90s, 1992, I think it was, and it was the guide to EAP. And there were, I think, 103 EAPs. Some were internal, like ours. Some were external. And then some were contract. And I called every single one of them. And uh, when I got on with the Chicago Firefighters EAP in, in 2001, I called every single one of them. It took me a little bit. Some of the phones were disconnected. Uh, people changed. But I think out of 103 that were in this book, maybe 15% were still sustained. 15%. Yeah. Yeah. I bring that up because you know we you work for the union, right? You're the peer coordinator and building it and working within a system is one thing, but sustaining it is a is a big part of it too. And that told me that, wow, not only do I have to build this program, but I have to have the people <clears throat> like Kevin did brought me in to sustain it. Yes. Let me go a little bit back. This is Local 2's EAP program that you get brought into. Does the fire department slash city have their own EAP program as well? Yeah, so we did. We had at the time two captains that ran it. One unfortunately passed away, another one retired. And then what they did is they replaced it with a civilian. And nothing against the civilian, but it wasn't as it wasn't a uniform member. Is is the thought of having the locals EAP is just is, does it come down to trust? Like Yeah, the, I think I think the, you know the far, that answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the firefighter or paramedic or whatever it may be is going to be more willing to go to somebody that the union confines in and, and trust than going to the city. Yeah, it's also just proximity because the fire department's EAP was housed in the administrative building headquarters. And so just by walking in there, you're breaking your anonymity. Even at Local 2, we tried to move our space outside, but costs just didn't work out, even though we're the second or third largest union in the country for the fire service. We were brought down to the first floor in a corner so that people would what just would have to pass the receptionist. But if somebody else was there, they'd know why they were there. So trust, anonymity is the big thing. Okay, no, that makes sense. At what point did uh, it kind of transferred from the EAP program to now including 
peer supporters officially? Yeah, so for Chicago, I've always said is that, you know, 5,000 active members plus 3,000, because you can't forget about the retirees. Back when I started, the average length, uh, average uh, lifespan after retirement was four years. Now it's it's more, but um, so brain freeze. Ask me that question again. Well, no, no problem. When did <laughs> when officially did kind of peer supporters come into play? Oh yeah, so we had a list of peer supporters. So with again those many people, we had a lot of people that were in recovery. And so we had a list of people that after I met with them, because I'm not an, in recovery for substances, we would, after we met with them and they were willing to go see potential, either see us or see a counselor, we would refer them to what we had identified as a 12-step or, or a peer supporter. And was it organized? No, um, that didn't happen until about, 2005, 2006, but we still had people that said, hey, listen, thanks for helping me. If I could help somebody else, and that's a whole part of the 12-step program, which is the 12-stepping. 12, 12 and part of your job too is just to share the resources, point people in the right direction. I mean, that's what it comes down to, listening to them, figuring out their problem, and sending them somewhere to get the appropriate help. At what point did you kind of realize that there isn't really something for us? Like we needed something specific for us because we're just a completely different animal than, you know, the, the typical individual. Yeah. So it didn't happen right away. I, I did know that we needed a union EAP and I supported it with data and <clears throat> building it and trying to build staff as well. The, True realization came around 2008, 2009, 2010, when we had 11 of our active and retired members that died by suicide in a two and a half year period. And on average, me and my staff would see somewhere in a range of 200 to 300 people annually for a variety of different reasons. The number one be in marital and, and relationships, as well as issues at work, uh, organizational stress and, and, and coworkers. Then uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, PTSD, anxiety, depression came along and it could all be intertwined too, but the main thing was relationship issues. And so the, sorry, again, I got distracted and, um, the, 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 as I referred those 200 to 300 people annually, my, my goal was to make sure that when I referred them, that they would buy in and, and that they would trust that clinician. And what I was finding out was that they trusted me, so they trusted them, but there was really nobody that came from our background. And then when I had the issue of those 11 suicides in two and a half years, I reached out to a bunch of doctors, a lot of people that I worked with. And most of them said, we have no understanding of suicide. And if you talk to most clinicians or researchers, they'll tell you that it's an area that 
people don't really research because there's there's not a lot of information for people that survive suicide that are willing to talk. So I was like, man, well, is this an issue in the fire service? I know it's an issue in the world. I didn't know how big it is. It continues to increase. So I started reaching out to people in the in, in other people that work for organizations, not just individual therapists, and, and asked them what they do for first responders. And they kind of looked at me like I just said, explain to me the Pythagorean theorem. Like I would say, if you, if I would look like if you asked me. And I, I realized how few people truly understand us from a career service base. And so I tried to find people that would be willing and un understand us and, and work specifically with, with us back in uh, really 2010. And, and what happened when you actually found somebody that would work with you? Well, I was, I was, I was elated. I was, I was excited. And then what I did too was offer them, Hey, are you willing for me to come in and speak to you about our culture, about what it is to be a firefighter and, or a paramedic. I wasn't a paramedic. I was an EMT. Uh, I certainly, it, <laughs> really fortunate that I didn't ride an ambulance in a sense. Our, our ambulances are out probably, we have 75 ambulances, they're probably out 20 out of 24 hours. They, they are inundated, exhausted. If you saw a medic come on the job and in five years, it looks like they aged 15 or 20. They're, and I'm not trying to make fun of them, it, it's a tough job. 80% of what we do in, in the fire service is EMS. It, 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 it's, it's exhausting. I remember the first 10 times I did CPR, they all died. I'm like, either I suck or this stuff doesn't work. But I had to talk to people, see if they were invested in us. And I, and I realized I just can't refer people based on an organizational name, organization's name. I had to get to know them. If I was gonna send people like me, they gotta buy in. And then there were only really two programs in the country that really focused on first responders and they were out in the East Coast and we couldn't send anybody, anybody out, of, out of state. So I went to the union, I went to the administration. I'm like, why can't we find a place in Illinois? I think that's something that people are doing now as peer supporters all across the country going, Okay, we know the IFF Center for Excellence. We know, and obviously, going to get to Rosecrans and the Florian program. Now there's about 20 programs across the country that focus on first responders. But back in 2010, there were, there were only two or three that I knew of, and um, some have folded for various different reasons. And so I came out to Rockford being one of them and Phil Eaton is the CEO or was the CEO for about 40 something years. I uh, looked at their profile, their leadership, all have been there for a while. And I said, hey, Phil, we got, and they were all men that died by suicide. We have people losing their job. We have people losing their life. We have people struggling with alcohol and drugs. We have this, symptomology as a result of all the trauma we experience can you 
help us. And he's like, let's do it. And I was like, really? <laughs> I was, I was, I mean, was it that simple? You, you pitched him and he was said, yeah, let's do it. Well, there, I was a little bit nervous. Uh, it, 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 I probably dumbed it down a little bit, but it's funny because I talked to the medical director and he goes, I don't know what you did, but in order for me to start a new program, I got to go through miles of red tape. You got one meeting with our CEO and got the program. Uh, had, like, yeah, that, that had to be like the best drive home ever. Like, just like, you know, you, you go in for the pitch, you have this crazy idea and it works. And you're like, all right, this is going to, this is going to be incredible. You know, I'm part of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when most of us probably that when we asked our wives, would you go out with us or would you marry us? And I said, yes. You're like, really? Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> Do you know what you're getting yourself into? Yeah. We fooled them, right? <laughs> uh, no, it, it was, but then that's when the work started. Like, oh my gosh, he wants to do this. Now we have to build a program. And I could tell you one thing that I wasn't going to do is that when I called one of the programs, and I won't mention the names because th there were, the response was, we know what you do. And I'm like, oh boy, you, you don't know what we do. Not, not, not Rosecrans said that, some other organization said that. We know what you do. Yeah, you, come on, Chicago Fire wasn't around. You don't know what we do. <laughs> Chicago Fire is not what we do. Uh, you could watch you know, police and military and fire and nursing and ER and all that, but that's, no, you, you don't know what we do. So I knew that I had to build a team that knew first responders, uniformed service personnel. We had to create a curriculum that our staff and the clients would buy into. We had to have a setting that was conducive to recovery. And the, the, the curriculum, as I, as I kind of mentioned, had to include aspects of our, of our job because the, the goal was not to remove us from the job. It was actually to reinsert them into the job and as, as you alluded to with 32,000 different departments across the country union non-union uh volunteer paid on call combination departments everybody does training but how many on behavioral health or peer support not enough not anywhere near enough yeah i mean i can re i can recall uh, speaking about, uh, uh, to the, to the OAPFF, which is our, our state union about, uh, kind of the aftermath of the mass shooting we had in Dayton. And I, I asked a crowd, which is a pretty large crowd who had, you know, show me your hands, peer support. And it was not anywhere near as many as I thought it would be in which I then responded, why the hell don't you have one? I think I said a different word, but to, to kind of drive my point home. Um, but no, I was surprised, uh, for the lack of peer support even, and this is, you know, 20, 2020, early 2020, when I 
you know, mm-hmm. about a year ago that I said that. So I can't imagine back then um, how there weren't that many either. I mean, it's got to be, you're more, probably one of the few in the state really that had that going on. Yeah, let's be honest, as everything was done covertly, hey, I'm, I need need help. There was no identified peer teams across the country. There was just people helping people and they were doing peer support. When we do training, we say, yeah, you've helped people. You've done peer support. But now we're going to create a little bit more formally. And and make no mistake is that the the, the union, the 13 executive board members changed over time. For the greater majority, they supported what we did. They didn't really want to know what the hell we did. And they didn't want to give us a ton of money to do what we do. But we were saving lives. And every year I had to go in front of them to justify our existence and to try to add to the program. And that was from the day I started back in you know 2001 to the day I moved on in 2014. And they still have to do that. So I don't want to give anybody the missing the the, the 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 misinformation or the or or that it was easy for me or anybody else we always talk about chief and champion you got to have the, the chief buy-in and you have to have a champion to move forward and most of the people just like yourself and we had a, a, a brief conversation before this is that if you look around a room and you don't see that champion guess what you are that person uh, whether or not you like it or not and then the question is, is how do you sustain it? And I found myself in that spot and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a fairly ominous, because well, what I thought of is when people were starting to die or by suicide, and I know alcoholism and drug addiction is a slow death, could obviously, unfortunately, could be quick too. But I'm like, I cannot have one of my members sitting in their house under the influence, thinking that they are have no self-worth and contemplating suicide on my watch. I can't do that and not do something. What I unfortunately realized is that while we can prevent suicide, it's not always avoidable. And you have to have people to, to intervene and, and ask the tough questions, but then you also need buy-in from whatever organization you're working under, the union, the administration, externally, the state, whatever. And let's be honest is that sometimes we can't decide how much we're gonna put in for the food club or what we're gonna eat that day, let alone who's gonna be the president of our union. So uh, just be realistic, right? We're great people, but you get us together, we can't always decide what the hell to do. So how are we going to put the, how are you going to get that chief and that champion, the funds and the support to sustain a program that a lot of times is behind the scenes? And, 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 and you might be asking, and the people listening might be like, okay, Dan, tell us. <laughs> like, That's, that is... You ask yourself the question. Go ahead, go ahead and finish it. Yeah, a, a lot of hard work, a lot of pain, sweat, and tears, a lot of conversation, 
because if you're truly going to keep this anonymous and confidential and maintain that trust, I can't go to the union floor. I can't go to the union president and go, hey, I, I helped Jim today. You know, I helped Dan get in a hospital today because he called me and he had he had a, a loaded gun in his house and he said he's going to use it. I mean, that, as we can sit here or people listening, if I said, tell me your top five traumatic events on the job, instantaneously you think of them. And then you're like, oh, shoot, let me push these out of my head. Yep. And then I think of the significant events, two to 300 more off on and off the job involving my personnel, the, the people that I worked with. You talk about impactful. So when we talk about sustainability and, and peer support and buy-in from an organization, are they gonna be as compassionate with the people that are struggling as they need to be and as I would be? It's, it's a it's a tall it's a tall order how did you let me ask you this because you know I, like what you're saying we intervene we deal with individuals and we get them the help that's needed but yet it's not something that we can brag about we can't tell everybody what just happened it's not you know as obvious as you know far far of the year you had two saves, you know, two grabs, whatever it may be, it, it goes, you just can't talk about it. So it goes unnoticed. So when you're talking about, when you're pitching to management or you're even pitching to your labor leaders uh, about, hey, this program is impactful and it has saved people. Um, we need X amount of dollars to keep it going or we want to do this. I mean, how are some of the ways that you were able to sell it without going into the details because i think I, can, I, I think there's a lot of uh unions out there that have that same same issue i, I learned early on i had to keep uh stats i had to keep metrics and keep the names out of it and even keep the stories out of it but basically put down maybe what i did is identified ranks how many lieutenants how many firefighters how many retired how many spouses uh maybe their age and why they called and then so and then also where i referred them because that would give the it would give the administration it would give the union it would give the executive board data i wouldn't put hours down on how many hours because they're uh, I, sorry because my brain goes all over the place when i think about this is that I can't tell you how many dinners I missed with my family. I remember after I had left local two and now work where I'm at now, I got a phone call and I got up and I walked into the other room. I didn't excuse myself and I just, I, I see the phone, I think about it for a second, 99% of the time I pick it up, I walk out and when I was gone, I found this out later, my oldest son who's 22 that just joined the military and waiting to go in. He said to my wife, who my wife told me later, she goes, 
I remember those days. And man, I'm like, gosh, darn. I, I, I remember being on Navy Pier July 4th with my family, who's my youngest child was born July 4th. So we took her out there and said, hey, I got a few fireworks that we're gonna blow off. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the city of Chicago put out all these fireworks. Go, that was a lot for you. Anyhow, so we're there. <laughs> I, I, I get a call from a guy who's in crisis. So for about 45 minutes, I'm on the phone away from my family when I should be with them. So it takes a toll. And those things, you know, that's just part of what happens with the peer support. But I had to keep metrics. I had to keep, uh, I didn't keep names. I kept the, you know, the ranks, the ages, um, those, that information. And also then what the issue was and the referral, so I understood where I needed to focus. And I say that because at one point I started to get a number of calls in regards to uh, DUI, driving under the influence. And I'm like, man, I don't know much about that. I mean, I probably did a little bit of that in my past, <laughs> uh, but I don't know what the laws are and the laws were changing. And, <clears throat> and unfortunately we had somebody lost a job. So then I had to, I had to focus on learning about that much like I had to do in regards to suicide when we had those seven and 18 months and four and five months, which was 11 and two and a half years. And then we continued to have an average of two each year thereafter. And I had to go to trainings and seminars and read and, and go, what is this suicide thing? So it not only helped the executive board support what we were doing, but it also helped me as an as a coordinator of our EAP and our peer support team on where what areas I should focus on. No, oh, perfect. Thank you for answering that. Uh, I also kind of what you just spoke of as well. I like for you to do a deeper dive. You get that call, you you give your wife that look like, I'm sorry, I gotta take this, and you walk into whatever room or uh, you know try to get some quiet and, and, and talk to that person in crisis. I mean, I can't imagine how many times that happened to you with such a large department. How, how do you, kind of, I don't want to say salvage, but how do you, how do you even have that discussion with your wife? Like when you, when you're constantly almost in trouble because of that, or was it just, it was never like that. She was super supportive and she understood it was for the greater good of, of those individuals that were calling you. Well, thanks for that question. Um, I, I didn't. I I have been doing this since I've been in this field since 1986. And if you count the fact that I grew up in an alcoholic family and um, dealt with an alcoholic father <clears throat> and did some other things, it, really my entire life. But what I failed at truly with was understanding the impact of that on my family and i probably still have not to any great length and that's what i was going to say is that don't be like me uh, and not have that conversation with your spouse or your kids um yeah i, I wish i can I, I wish i had a mentor i wish kevin was around to say hey 
make sure that you touch base with your wife and your kids because you're going to be pulled away innumerably and for a period of time where you're going to come back and it, it, it really it hit me i mean when my wife said when my son said that when i was out of the room i was like damn uh i knew from a matter of fact way that she knew i had to take that call she buys into that she's got a master's in child and family therapy she's way smarter than me way prettier than me uh way more easygoing if her german temper doesn't get in the way uh but i failed i i failed miserably if if you watched like you, like i said in regards to the keynote I did for Bobby and he wanted me to talk about mental health. One of the things I had to talk about was vulnerability. And I can't stand up here that saying I did everything right. I, I didn't. So if I, if I, yeah, you picked up on it is that you, you have to have that conversation with your spouse and your kids. Thanks for sharing. Um, Cause I know that can, I've had to have that and I'm sure uh, other people have as well. And if not, if you haven't, you know, Dan's telling you, He's been around a block. He can, you know, he recommends that. And I can't say enough about that as well. Having that open line of communication, kind of having that permission ahead of time, even though a lot of times it comes at uh, not the greatest of times. It kind of is what it is. Yeah, she wouldn't change it either. She wouldn't tell me, hey, choose us before them. But the fact that I didn't even acknowledge, acknowledge it was a real shortcoming in my in my. my personality myself and I wish I could go back and even just say hey sorry uh, because she she understood that I looked at it as my family was 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 intervening and saving other families but I it it took a toll on mine have have you had a, a conversation with your kids about that at all ever um briefly briefly they seem like they understood. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. They knew I wasn't doing anything malicious. Uh, and my wife had many conversations with them. I guess the, the, the good side of it is that um, I wasn't, you know, spending time at the, at the, at the bar or other things. It, it, was, it was a good thing, but it still had an effect. And then when I came back, one of the big things I talk to people about is it's kind of like the guy in the green mile, you know, he took that death, that sickness away from that woman. I don't really take anything away, but I, the, the number one thing I learned in regards to peer support and counseling is the skill of listening. If you do anything, and, and we all know this, if I come home and my, my, my wife listens to me, I, I, I feel pretty good. <laughs> she doesn't tell me, when she tells me what to do, that pisses me off. But uh, <laughs> I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know already, right? It's sure. what it, sure. when you feel heard, you feel better. Yeah, well, yeah. And that's what peer supporters and, and, you know, I, I, I wear a variety of different hats and I'm a clinician, I'm a certified addiction, uh, addiction counselor, 
I'm a certified EAP. I, I'm certified as a, a uh, interventionist. A lot of certifications, but no advanced degree. Uh, but just to, to, to say that there, there's a lot of training over my span of life that I have had to go through to be better at what I do, but it also has an effect at, at home. I follow. I follow you. Life lessons. Yeah. And you could take those and then you know, reuse them as needed. Just experience. So, if I may, I, I want to, I, I do want to definitely touch on the work you're doing now, uh, the Florian mm -hmm. program that you helped uh, create. Um, could you kind of describe just that whole program, what it uh, encompasses and and how individuals can actually come and seek help there? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that question. It's, it's pretty near and dear to my heart, but if you'd have asked me 20 years ago, if I would have ever done this, I'd have been like, what do you mean? The 2.67 grade point average? Let's, let's be real. <laughs> also, in regards to being the coordinator for local 2ZAP, I'm like, no, nah, that's, I, I can't do that. Um, but what I know about first responders is we do, we put ourselves in the mix to, to do stuff. And like I shared with you when we had those suicides at the time, and then when I researched programs in my state and, and elsewhere and didn't find You know, you'd say uh, treat, treatment is 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 treatment, but it's got there's got there's specific field. It's like saying every firefighter is the same. Well, we have special ops, we have EMS, we have dual trained, we have uh, IED. You know, we have hazmat. We have a variety of different things engine people, truck people, squad people. Uh, and so also having the education in the, in, in the clinical world, <clears throat> uh, at the time, I didn't know what it was like to be an older person. That's why when I was at the age of 21 to 24, I was counseling adolescents. And then as I got older, it was easier to help people my age, but I had nothing, no understanding of elder care, people in their 60s or 70s or 80s. Well, guess what? I'm 56 now. I, I, I'm, I'm getting a better understanding of, of their needs. Helping adolescents helped you prepare for firefighters because it's about the same thing, right? <laughs> well, that and as you mentioned earlier too, is that was besides my degree in psychology, understanding what I needed to do what raising my children in regards to behavior management and not uh, backing myself into a corner and setting guidelines or consequences that I couldn't follow through with. Sure. So the program is really, so there's treatment, there's CBT, DBT, uh, seeking safety. There's a bunch of manualized programs and evidence-based <clears throat> therapeutic approaches that all treatment 
programs utilize. And then there's other ones like EMDR or in vivo therapy or prolonged exposure therapy or brain spotting, uh, TMS, transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation for specialty areas based on the situation with the individual, uh, medication management. But I knew that if to what, what reached the people that I dealt with and what reaches me the best is when somebody understands where you come from. And so the basis of this program, the Florian program, which was started in 2014 specifically for fire and EMS is that, and that's because who I am, we had personnel on the unit, staff and clinicians that have come from that field or have a spouse in that field or a family member. So they have that understanding of 24 hour shifts or 48 hour shifts or tens and 14s or whatever it is. So you don't have to explain that to them, understand what it is to work all sleepless nights, see the carnage, all that. Have, a, have an understanding of that, have an understanding of the clinical world and approach. And one of the big things that we started to look at back in 2014, which is talked a lot more now is about sleep and sleep patterns and sleep issues. And we found out that a lot of people were self-medicating to or anesthetizing themselves to go to sleep. So we try to find medication, which is not always the best thing, but it, it's b better than the alternative with a goal of get, weaning them off once their sleep pattern gets better. Uh, I've been retired for 15 months now and I unfortunately have not slept through the night. I knew it was gonna take some time for that to happen. Partly because I have two cats I'm allergic to. My wife flips around like a fish out of water. And <clears throat> I spent seven years in downtown Chicago. So I was up, I had anywhere from 15 to 25 runs a day. And I might've had uh, 45 minutes stretches where I where was able to fall asleep or pass out. So my brain is like, uh, what's the next thing going on? So then it just wakes me up. I don't want to hear that. You know, I'm close enough to where I'm, you know, not close, close, but you know, I'm hoping that as soon as I get off, I'm, I'm able to sleep and sleep normal. Just well, beyond, I, I hope you, beyond, I beyond hope getting you up and having a pee that happens to me all the time <laughs> still. Well, I, I hope you do, Jim. Um, I got a buddy that it took two and a half years. I have other people that took six months. The reality is, is that we are in a field for, 20 to 30 plus years and our brain learns and we have to unlearn that. And that's what I realized too. So we look at sleep patterns. We try to help them with sleep because if they don't sleep, they're not refreshed and they can't sit there for 12 to 14 hours a day and learn and take stuff in and process it. I know how I was after a, a shift where I might've had two or three hours of sleep. I mean, I, you know how it is and we all do, right? You're, you're exhausted, you're, you're, your fuse is a, about an inch, if, if that. As soon, uh, and as soon as you catch up, it's time to go do it again. Exactly. So we look at that. Uh, we get them on a, a eating, eating regimen of eating less sugars and, and starches. Um, those are some of the, the, the 
physiological things that we can help them with. But the, the, the connection really stems from peer support. We had people that, uh, there's an organization I researched peer support back in 2014. And a couple came up, one was in Tennessee, one was in California. We actually had one in Illinois called Illinois Firefighter Peer Support. So I reached out to them and we utilized some of their team members to come in to share their story and connect with the clients and um, show, hey, it's, it's very possible to continue your, to recover, to continue your career as a firefighter or, or paramedic or dual role and not use substances and to reduce the stigma, to reduce the shame, and to show that there's support. Now, over the last six and a half years, we've had over five come from about 30 different states across the country. So obviously, they're not gonna be able to utilize all the time uh, our peer support unless it was by phone. So to meet with people, one of the big things was for me to interact with people all throughout the country to then, as they move back to Ohio or Texas or Florida, to connect them with peer support people. Well, as you know, back in 2014, how many peer support programs were around? And so then you'd reach out into the community for AA and obviously individual counselors or partial uh, intensive outpatient programs, step down from a, a residential treatment center and then that struggle was also how many of those people understand their schedule, understand who they are, they're starting over. Um, we've come a long way since 2014. A lot of people throughout the country. I mean, I look at Ohio, <clears throat> and I, you probably are familiar with Heathgood and part of your statewide peer support team that's broken up into four different divisions, which, man, it's wonderful absolutely wonderful so people to facilitate the curriculum a good solid curriculum and included sleep and certain type of therapies as well as experiential therapies like art and equine therapy and horse you know horse assisted therapy uh, meditation uh, eating right getting on a routine feeling better and then we also utilize something that all fire personnel police personnel are very familiar with and that is a spiritual approach like through a chaplain and i'm not saying religion but a chaplain we have a chaplain that was here that grew up in a volunteer uh fire service and we have one now that spent eight years in the military in the army they come in and they meet with our clients twice a week and talk about spirituality because a lot of us have that unfortunate that change in our mentality of there's a lot of bad stuff out there doom and gloom sometimes and kind of nihilism where we, we came in very happy and go lucky and we see things a little bit different unfortunately a lot of times like police officers because they're always responding to a bad incident <clears throat> and then secondary trauma vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, burnout. They talk about those two pieces to try to rebuild the person. And, and, and if you hear what I'm saying from a holistic standpoint to cover all the stuff of what, what are the 
effects and the symptomology of a career in the fire service, in EMS, and how can we build that person up and, and, and talk about the things that they're thinking about, they're feeling, but they don't know where to put it. So those are really the components of the, the program. No, it, it sounds really good. I know that my, the individuals I've dealt with that have sought help, more and more they seem in, more inclined to go and go to a program that is specific for their job, being a EMT, medic, firefighter, than just uh, your typical any program out there that anybody can go to. Like they, they feel, they just feel special and they want to be treated uniquely. And so it's programs like you, yours, that they're, they're seeking. And I don't know if that's a trend everywhere else, but I mean, that's at least what it is here to where they don't, they don't want to deal with the regular stuff. They want to just deal with their own brothers and sisters are good with that they don't want to deal with what they consider outsiders. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, the clinical world is vast and there's a lot of smart people out there, but a lot has to do with, we've all been through a lot of EMS class, a lot of fire classes, a lot of smart people out there, but smart doesn't always equate to me learning. If I buy into that instructor, I'm more apt to learn more. So I'm just applying what I've learned from my own yeah, uh, the, the 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 guy that, or I, I guess I earned a D twice in microeconomics, but I man, I could not connect with that guy, and he didn't do much to connect with me. So, you know, my grade reflected it, and so what I try to do whenever I talk with somebody is I don't put myself above or below. I put them on the on the same lines as how can I. I really got to ask myself, can I help that person? I mean, I didn't get in. I, I shared that I grew up in an alcoholic family, but I couldn't get my dad to stop drinking. I said, so what makes me think, and I often tell peer supporters or clinicians, what makes you think you could get them to stop drinking? And they're like, oh, and I mean, it's a pretty poignant question. Yeah, you may want to help. And you mentioned that before about we, we want to help. I always ask and I didn't know this all the time before, believe me, I have to ask myself when I intervene in somebody, why did you call me? And when people want to come into my program or, or the program here, not my program, but the flooring program, I ask them usually why? Because if they don't know that they're going to be working their butt off for 14 hours a day and being given direction, they're not coming to the right program. If they want to go relax and get aromatherapy and swim in a pool and not be in one degree winter, and they want to be in Florida where my daughter's at catching fish with her boyfriend in 80 degree weather, there's a lot of programs down there. But they call it inpatient treatment for a reason. And I often tell the, the, the men and women that are here, if you're not tired by the end of the day, or if you haven't gone through a variety of emotions, then one of us are not doing enough work. So my job is not to make people comfortable. Uh, when my dad was comfortable, he was drinking. 
meaning if I wasn't, you know what I mean, is, is uh, so, yeah, I, I always ask myself, what is help? What is the right mix of education and, and training and therapies? And we re review our program every year to find out, are we doing what we're saying we're doing? And we, we've reviewed it uh, and, and add tweaked here and, and, and tweaked there. And what I'd also like to say is that over the years, uh, actually in 2017, three years after we started the program, we opened it up the program program to all uniformed service personnel. And of late, we've had a rise in uh, veteran personnel, uh, armed service, uh, re retired personnel that have come in the program and uh, people from the healthcare system, uh, nurses and CNAs and so forth. It's just been around the, the COVID for the last year. So we've expanded our reach. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, where can uh, our listeners find out more information on the Florian program? Yeah, pretty simple. World Wide Web, rosecrans.org, uh, R-O-S-E-C-R-A-N-C-E.org, and or Google uh, Rosecrans Florian program, and it should come to our page. We have, uh, I have an advisory board made up of 12 people. Uh, Bobby Halton is one of them. Uh, several guys from my department that were peer supporters. Uh, Pat Kenny, who's... Uh, you might have heard that was just recently retired from Western Springs, super guy, and several other people that we chat, discuss, look at what we should infuse into the program. Like I said, we review it every year. And, um, you know, we, we did a symposium for four years. They were involved in, in that. Uh, but yeah, the World Wide Web, you know, my email, D DeGrace at rosecrans.org. And uh, anybody could reach out to me and I'll, you know, it's not because they have to come to Florian, but as you already know from me blabbing my gums, I've been around this for a while. I probably won't, I, I, I had a conversation with Frank Lito. He's the deputy director of the FDNY Counseling Center and he's looking at you know, moving on and, and passing a torch. We've been looking at that for the last few years, but uh, I think he's actually gonna maybe possibly do it, but we're like, well, what are we gonna do afterwards? And we'll probably still, you know, be involved. You can't help, but, you know, do it. Um, probably told you a little bit more than you wanted, but. No, I, I'm waiting for you to say, uh, I guess I'll just get down to Florida and go fishing with my daughter. Man, if I wasn't still paying for the their four college tuitions, uh, yeah, I would love to have a, <laughs> a hut or or a <laughs> a rental place. I'd love to be down there. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Well, now Dan, I I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the show and sharing your experience and and thank you for everything that you you put on. Um, you know, up there, that's a resource for for all of us out there. Yeah, you're welcome, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, to meet you, find out a little bit about what you and your your, your department is 
doing or has been doing it's it's really inspiring for people like me i don't stand sit here as anybody special many people have asked me well how what what made you get into this and 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 how'd you stay in it for so long i don't know i blinked my eyes and it's been three decades later i certainly didn't do it for the six dollars and 85 cents back then or or the part-time pay I, I made but it's really to like the same reason you do this is to meet people to help people um, to send a message share a message and uh, it, it's it's very inspiring for people like me to meet people like you that are doing that sharing the message and like you interviewed Brandon Dreamin, um, super guy that I met years back, and he's taken that his program at Indianapolis uh, with Doug Abernathy to another level. Um, I mean, I can name a, a number of people that you know there weren't programs back in uh, 2014, let alone it's, 2010. It's amazing, Dan. I I think about the situation I'm in now trying to do behavioral health in my department, which is not necessarily large like yours, but certainly not small. And it's, it has to be a thousand times easier than what you were dealing with back, you know, in the nineties, early, you know, two thousands. It, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to, I, I try not to say too many negative things. It, it, well, I guess I would say it'd be like advancing a two and a half inch line down the, down the, the gangway by yourself. Uh, I, I'm a believer that many hands might like work, uh, but we got to be able to ask for help. I, when you asked me to be on a show, I'll be honest with you, I'm like, who the heck wants to listen to this C average student? And I uh, remember my another C average student. <laughs> good, perfect. We're in good company. Uh, I, I didn't always pour my heart and soul into everything that I did, but I knew I had to do. Yeah, I mean, 36 years later, and find out where we're at now, and I see the lives that me and people that I've worked with have touched. Every once in a while, we'll get a phone call. Um, or an email, man, I, that, that's special. Um, if I could end, end, end with this, because again, pictures in my head, I remember me and about four other people spent about two hours inside a establishment where this individual was uh, consuming alcohol and he had said on Facebook that he was going to end his life that day. And most people are like, oh, um, my, my dad was uh, suicidal for many years. He never ended up dying by suicide, but came very close to ending his life. And it was a constant thought on our family's head for many years. And I remember going to the, the, the place and I called a friend of mine to help us because you can't do something like that alone once, let alone 10 or 15 times. You can't self-care. And I remember driving her going, am I going to be able to help this person? 
And some people are like, yeah, sure, you can help them. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't get the thoughts of, of suicide out of my dad's head. And he came very close to attempting it on three occasions. Um, and the thought never left his head. And then when we took the means away, I, I had to ask him, are you still thinking about how you're going to do it? And he said, yeah. And he told me how he was going to do it. So anyhow, we intervened in this guy's life that night, got him to the hospital. And we found out three weeks later, he attempted suicide again, or it, it, he didn't attempt it that night, but he attempted it three weeks later. A year later, I get an email from this gentleman. He goes, hey, I know I didn't always, I probably didn't take the path that you would have liked me to, but I want to let you know something. You saved my life that day. He goes, because I was going to do it. He goes, I know I tried it later and I was unsuccessful, but I didn't have the heart. I didn't have the desire I did that night. So I, I tell people, and this is why I come on these shows or anywhere, you never know the impact you're going to have on somebody. And I felt guilty that he did attempt it, but thank goodness he sent me that email, you know, 11 months later. Because I'm like, what could I have done that would better? And I, and I realized even with my dad is I could talk to him. I could hear him out. I can't take those things out of his mind, just like I can take the pictures out of your mind. But I could be there for that individual. And we did. We did our job that day. So many of us are going to lose people. And many are going to lose families and so forth. But don't stop doing what we're doing because you will make a difference. That's that's great. That's a great way of getting out of your Dan. Thank you so much for sharing that and, and everything else that you talked about today. So I really, truly, honestly can't appreciate you enough. Yeah. So thank you to all my listeners. Once again, Dan DeGrice. Thank Thanks, Jim.